Well, welcome to this unique podcast. My name is Matthew Eckert. I live in London, Ontario, Canada. Uh, This podcast is being recorded in the summer of 2022. And it's going to be a unique conversation with a good friend of mine, Oscar Maru from Nairobi, Kenya. Now, quickly, my background, I'm a guy in my mid-50s. I've had multiple careers, farming, banking, passed for 17 years, and currently just uh, doing more traveling and connecting with the church around the world. And I met Oscar Mareo, I don't know, seven, eight years ago as he came to Canada to visit us, and we've become friends. And he's actually staying with us right now uh, for three weeks. We're just hanging out uh, connecting with people together and Oscar about six months ago shared some unique things with me that I thought you know what the church needs to hear these things and as Oscar tells me well Matthew Africans don't write books now we can talk about that in a second I'm, I'm, these are his words not my words but I thought well maybe we can put this in audio format and just get some good insight from Oscar on this so I'm grateful that he's agreed to do this and we'll see where this takes us uh, just to give you a quick intro about Oscar, I'm not gonna t- we're not going to talk about his whole story. There's lots online if you want to get to know who Oscar Mareo is from Nairobi Chapel in Kenya, you can do that. Uh, my goal here is to walk through these eight pieces and probably an eight-part series podcast to see what's there. But Oscar's in his early 60s, and Oscar has led Nairobi Chapel for over 30 years. Uh, it's grown to over four or five thousand people in the main location, but they've they planted over 250 churches in the last 15 or so years and continue to move forward on that. So there's some neat insight to gain from. So Oscar, I'm glad you're here and I look forward to this conversation with you. Well, thank you, Matt. It's wonderful to be here. <laughs> and so just based on what I quickly said before we go to your points, what do you want to say? Introduce yourself. Um, why did you actually maybe I'll ask this question. You, we, when we talked about this, you said, you know what, As at my age now, I need to zone into my 5%. Yeah. So talk about that quick, just to set this up before we jump into okay. these points. I'll yeah. do two things. I'll talk about that and I'll also talk about uh, a little of my background sure. because okay. it, it plays into where I am Excellent. now. Excellent, thank you. And just begin to say that, you know, somebody once said to me that, you know, of all the hundreds of things that land on your desk as a leader, and especially as a lead pastor, a senior pastor, um, 80% can be done by people who are in different parts of the organization. You know, your children's pastor, maybe some of the children's workers, maybe the youth pastor and etc. They don't need to be on your desk and that's 80%. And you as a pastor have to be wise to decide, you know, Is this something I should be giving my attention to? Is this something that somebody else should attend to? That's 80%. And then they went on to say that another 15% um, belongs to your senior management. Mm. The decision makers close to the top who make the big decisions, who have developed the gift of being able to think outside of their specific ministry. You know, the youth pastor will only sort of defend and die for youth, you know, mm. budgets and youth programs and etc. But when you get to more senior leadership, you have to think of the whole organization and not just your little department. And so 15% of what lands on your desk as a senior leader belongs to them. Mm. They can make those decisions and they can move forward. But there is a 5% that no one else can do, only you can do. And that's what belongs to you. Mm. Oftentimes it involves vision, it involves, you know, senior staffing, it involves, you know, difficult people judgments, 
and those sorts of things. That's your 5%. If you spend your time in the other, you know, 95%, mm. then you are overpaid and underserving. Mm. You're not performing at the level, you know, at which you have been placed. Mm. And it means, therefore, that your 5% gets your focused attention. It's vision, it's prayer, it's discerning the mind of the Lord, direction, trends in society, the future of the church, and those sorts of things. That's your 5%. And I guess, you know, more than anything now in this season of my life, that's what I've got to focus on. Now, if you go back over my story, I started off as a 20-something, you know, straight out of college, passionate for the Lord, eager to serve in any way I could. And I was appointed to be the lead pastor of a small dying congregation that had less than 10 people left. Mm. And um, I went there and I poured everything into it and, you know, didn't know half of what I was doing. In fact, I often say that I felt as though I was riding a rodeo and I was hanging on for dear life, but the Lord was going somewhere with this thing. And I, I never was in charge. I never was in front of. I never was the one really leading. I was just trying to keep up with mm. what the Lord was doing. But the church began to grow. Mm. And in the first years, it was numerical growth. Just, you know, numbers to 80, to 150, to 250. These were all milestones we, that we passed on the way. Um, and that was probably the first seven years or so. The next probably seven years or so, we're really multiplying ministries and programs mm. and reaching across a wide and diverse sector of society. We had children, youth, you know, all sorts of people coming in. When we started, we were sort of very monolithic, if I may put it that way, because we're at the University of Nairobi, and so most of the people are university students. But many had grown up, graduated, gone into industry, etc., had families now, and so we had to cater for that. We had to cater for the children. There was still the university students and older people began to come. So we diversified in the second chapter of our story. The third chapter was when we began now to go out in missions, church planting, mm. overseas missions, and etc., etc. And over the last, I would say, 15 years, maybe 90% of the churches planted have been planted in that season. Mm. That was the third season. It was also the season where the teams multiplied, where we needed to develop leadership. If you're planting churches, you have to have leaders, try to figure out what our DNA is, how we do things, where we're going, all those sorts of things. I'm now possibly in the fourth chapter, mm. which is with so many churches planted, without any strategy except to expand the kingdom of God, without any attempt to organize these churches into any sort of cohesive mass, each one planted with a measure of independence, go do the work of the kingdom and we'll plant the next church. Uh, the time came when the, you know, the leaders of the church said, boy, are we creating a mess with all these churches and no organization. <laughs> and so they told me, you step back from senior mm. leadership, senior pastoral leadership, mm. and you oversee all these churches and mm. organize them. And, um, you know, that's a chapter I'm in now. And mm. I think this is probably the last chapter for me. Mm. I'm over 60 now. I expect within the next, at the most, 15 years, I will have stepped out of ministry. And so I have a focus that needs to be very clearly the 5% for mm. me. Otherwise, it will not be a fruitful mm. fourth chapter. Okay. Mm. So this first podcast is going to be more about you then, which is great. Um, so talk about this, this 5% piece. Maybe it works for you now because of your age and the size of your church. But someone could be listening to this. They're 30. They're 28. They got a church of 80 or 100. They're going, what do you mean 5%? I do so much stuff. Yeah. 
So I guess my goal, my, how does that relate to them? Because you lived through that season yourself. You have pastors who are in that season, right? They've planted a church. They have 80 people. So what's the encouragement to the pastor of a smaller church who thinks, I got to do everything. Sometimes I got to pick up a guitar and play some music. So how does this connect into that conversation, even as you mentor pastors in Nairobi Chapel yeah. who have a smaller context? A couple of things I would say about that, uh, Matt. One is, I think the biggest mistake I made uh, leading this thing, um, this ministry over the years, was I really sought to be the be-all, end-all hmm. of leadership. I did everything. Hmm. Every, I, you know, there were times when I would be the person at the public address system because nobody understood it as we started to specialize and I did I have a mind for those sorts of things and so you know I'd casually walk to the back and set the sound because we <laughs> were having you know feedback and those sorts of things and I knew what to do um, this was a mistake mm. and I did not fully understand it at the beginning um, if I could go back in time what would I do different about that I think one of the things I would do is number one teach a lot more on the place of spiritual gifts mm and begin leadership tracks for each of the spiritual gifts hmm. and raise up high quality people in each area of ministry so that I wasn't having to be the one to do this. And I didn't do a good job at that in terms of the individual ministries. We raised up a bunch of leaders and our focus was always missions and church planting. But we didn't invest as much in the spiritual gifts in terms of, you know, public address, sound, you know, arts, drama, those sorts of things. Those were anybody who can be a part of this year, welcome. And it was a big mistake because I often had to step in and give leadership to that direction, uh, you know, vision, growth, all those sorts of things. Mm. That's one thing I would say I'd do different. I think I recognize for the, you know, a younger pastor, if, if it was me now at 60s talking to me at 30, I would also say this. Anything you do now as a young leader in a young church, especially, is going to be the culture of the church mm. 15 years down the road. Mm. And so be very careful mm. what you embrace and empower and nurture because it will become a feature in your future and later on what was appropriate and good for now may become a pain in the neck may become a thorn in the flesh down the road i'll give you an example of that because i did everything i threw myself into ministry i worked very hard i never learned to say no i didn't even know what pacing myself was about and i never learned anything about balance Okay, And so what happened was, I am just that sort of person, energized, choleric, you know, I like tick lists because I get things done quickly that way and etc. Um, that culture of working with no limits, burning the candle at both ends, has become the culture of work in the churches now that are the daughter churches of Nairobi. Oh, Chapel. really? So it's actually... The DNA has actually moved out to the church plants. Yes. Ah. And and now it is my biggest enemy hmm. because my pastors are burning out hmm. and because they know that, you know, our leaders showed us how to do this thing. Hmm. And so they're all trying to do that. And some of them might be good at that because that's their gifting. Many are not. Hmm. You know, they say of the four temperamental types that, you know, we talk about, you know, sanguine, 
choleric, uh, phlegmatic, and melancholic, that probably about 65% of people in the world are phlegmatic. They're laid back, you know, they're not too worried about targets and goals and etc. Okay, and then maybe about um, I think it's about maybe about twenty percent, uh, uh, you know, sanguine, mm. uh, happy go lucky. They mm. love people. They enjoy being in crowds. They're energized by crowds, mm. and then maybe another fifteen percent, uh, you know, melancholic. Mm. You know, they want every T crossed and every I dotted, and they you know, do things and will not let go of something until it is 100% complete. Mm. Only 5% are choleric. Mm. There are not enough cholerics to go around. <laughs> you have one choleric on your team and that is it. Okay, you should be satisfied. Get used to the phlegmatics because they are plentiful. Two, mm. two for the price of one, okay? <laughs> and, and the long and short of it is um, our system thrives because I was choleric. Our system thrives with cholerics, mm. and cholerics feel energized in the culture I created. Okay. The phlegmatics don't, mm. and the melancholics get left behind because they won't let go of this one agenda until it is 100% complete, mm. and they can go on to the next one. They work that way, very methodical and etc. Mm. And they don't thrive in that system. Mm. Because I have surrounded myself with cholerics. In other words, I've pinched a lot of cholerics mm. from other sectors of life because I thrive on cholerics. So they've been drawn to you. <laughs> they've been and drawn. And you've tapped them on the shoulder. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. And now the culture of the of the church is, you know, work, 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 work. And so part of what I'm recognizing now as an older man is the danger of burnout. Mm in the culture that I have created. Mm. And I couldn't see that as a young man. I wish I could go back and deal down the clock and and take things different. Learn mm. to, you know, delegate, learn to raise up leaders and not try and do it all myself. Mm. 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 So going back to this idea of the 5%, though, can, is it possible? Like, what's, what's the possibility for a, a young pastor leader of at 30 with a church of 80 my guess is you can't be as folks as you can like you have some staff around to do these pieces or is it you obviously mentioned one thing you would have raised up more leaders and focused on that more mm -hmm. i guess is it possible or are there seasons you said you're in season four yeah do you have to just accept that certain seasons are certain ways of going about things is that like yeah. am, I, am i getting here or, yeah because yeah because you're 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 mentoring dozens of other pastors now so you're watching them how are you trying to guide them to step into what they should do as far as the leader goes versus mm -hmm. what they maybe are doing? Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. I would say for a church under 100 people, yeah. um, one full-time pastor is, is good. Yeah. What you need to do is to develop a lot of volunteers and to release the volunteers. And it doesn't overwhelm volunteers. You, you've got to realize that we have also developed churches whose culture is to burn out volunteers. And we like volunteers who are always there. But they have a life to live and they have a job to, you know, to keep and etc. And so they, in all honesty, most volunteers can only give so many hours a week and, and they can't give more. And when we demand more, what we're introducing is chaos into their life and they won't cope. They'll burn out or they'll walk away. Um, and so I think the first step is to develop a lot of lay leaders, especially young people. Young people have the gift of time and energy. Uh, older people don't have that. Older people have the gift of money and experience. And so you bring the two together 
and you have a mix where you have some older people who are the sort of you know process thinkers and those sorts of things and can fund things but the younger people are there they have energy they are present they are not they don't have dependence and they don't worry too much about their timetable and such and bring that together and develop a really good volunteers team and put your energy as a leader mm. into empowering into tapping on the shoulder mm. into encouraging into cheering and into raising up a big team of volunteers. So, oh, this is good. Now, now that's, that's just the first thing. Okay, okay. So I'll, I'll talk about the others. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, no. Well, I'm interested as you talk about this because I've, I've watched younger pastors. Many of them go into pastoring because they love to preach. Yeah. And they prefer to spend 20 hours a week and they hope other things get done as well, right? And then they're scrambling. And what you're talking about is, well, if you're going to choose to lead a church you are actually choosing to actually own certain things, such as raising up leaders. And how does the pastor who says, well, I just want to read the Bible more and more commentaries and preach. And there's, I, I've seen that wrestle. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, you're more of a natural leader developer, so mm. you're a good preacher, but you go and find people, tap them on the shoulder. Others say, well, just leave me alone to preach. Yeah. How can they then lead well? And how does that fit into this whole conversation? There's a problem with... Um church leadership and church organization, organizational structure that, that you know we've introduced in these modern days. And I think it is this. I think we want a jack of all trades and a master of none. Mm. So the good pastor is supposed to be the amazing shepherd. He's a good, mm. you know, public speaker. He's funny. You know, he's deep in the word. He's a prayer warrior. Mm. Nobody can be all these things. Perfect parent. <laughs> yeah, perfect parent, perfect <laughs> husband. You know, nobody can be all these things. And and God never made it that way. Mm. That's why he gave spiritual gifts. I think we have to have the humility to say, look, what is your gift? Mm. And you might be a good organizational leader, but not a good preacher. Mm. Give that piece to somebody else. You might be good. I find sometimes good preachers don't make good service leaders. Mm. They just don't know how to draw in the crowd and mm. speak to them and help them relax and settle down and, you know, own, etc. Give that to somebody else. Mm. You, you don't have to be a jack of all trades. Mm. Now, the problem is when you go to theological college, this is what you're taught. The queen of all sciences is, you know, hermeneutics and etc. And so you, ha you come out with this thing that the most important task I will ever do in the, po I mean, in the church is preach. No, it's not. People are more interested in good shepherds than they are in good preachers. Mm. And good preachers without good shepherds should be in, in theological college teaching a class. And, uh, or rather, you know, good, good preachers without, yeah, without being a good shepherd, you really belong to the class because you're good at ideas mm. and theory. Mm. Whereas people, what really makes people settle down and be loyal mm. is that you know me, you know my name, you showed up when I was in a crisis. Mm. You care for my family. Mm. Those are the things that, that engender loyalty. Mm. The preaching is good. But nowadays with the internet and, you know, the mm. web and etc., I can get the world's best preachers at the snap of a finger. I don't, I don't need you to be that for me. I do want you to be a good communicator, but you don't need to be the mm. world's best communicator. Mm. So, so I think it's a problem that we have mm. in the way that we've modeled church. And the end result is that we're burning people. Mm. In addition to the fact that this, this good preacher is going to spend 15 hours, 20 hours preparing a message. But we also expect him to visit everyone in hospital, <laughs> to visit every small group, to be at every event. They'll never cope. Mm. It's too much. Mm. It can't be done by one person. How does someone humble themselves enough 
to say, guys, I'm good at this. I'm not good at that. Do, do, or do churches not allow a yeah. pastor to say, guy, I'm good at this. I'm not good at this. Who is going to step in? Because I'm of a belief that whatever the size of your church is, 50 or 1,000, God has given your little community what it needs to accomplish what he wants you to accomplish. Yeah. I think we often as leaders look at what someone else is doing and we say, well, let's do that too versus slowing down enough and say, okay, God, you've given us 80 people. You've given us the gifts we need for what you want us to do. Let's stop looking at what others are doing. Yeah. But that takes humility to it say does. this is our piece. And how it do does. you guide your pastors mm -hmm. to think about that? Because, yeah. I think there are two things that have been said. One is uh, focus on your strengths, mm -hmm. your God-given gifts, and hire for your weaknesses. Don't try and be at all. Just find the guy who does this well and bring him on your team. And that's true as volunteers also. You don't have to actually pay for it. Just find the right volunteers and put them in those places. So you can have a volunteer teaching staff. Mm -hmm. You can um, you preaching staff. You can have, you know, a volunteer shepherds, etc. They you, they don't have to be paid. Mm -hmm. But this is their spiritual gifts. Mm -hmm. I think that's one. I think the second is yes, it takes humility mm -hmm. for a leader to recognize that I am not the end all be all. And that humility should lead us to the place where mm. we empower others, mm. as opposed to making us feel inadequate and unable. Mm. Now, you're right. Most churches don't give their pastoral staff that privilege of mm. saying, yeah. we know what your strengths are, you know, build those and surround yourself with good people who can mm. complement where your weaknesses are. That's unfortunate. Mm. But let me come back to what I had said yeah. earlier, okay? Step one for our young leaders, volunteers. Find volunteers to do this. Mm. I think step two is build up a special class of people who are um, lay pastors, mm. formal lay pastors. So even the title is important, you think, to the give them that title. important because titles tend to empower people, mm. both in the eyes of the congregation, but also personally. When I realize this title has been placed on me, and um, and so, I you know, you want to do this. You want to ordain them, if I may call them mm. that. And it doesn't have to be the same ordination as, you know, your own ordination with all the pomp and ceremony and etc. But it can be a service where you lay hands and anoint a person and tell them, from this point on, mm. you are a lay pastor in this congregation. And there are traditions that do this well, okay? But what that does is, in the eyes of the public, they have been put on a pedestal, okay, in a good way. And they themselves recognize the game plan changes from this point on mm -hmm. because now I am visible to people mm -hmm. and therefore I need to. So you want to take them through training and you want to, you know, um, tr help them, get them to do this for a couple of, you know, months, years, and then formally recognize them. Mm -hmm. I remember being in a church once in Atlanta and I don't live in the States. I was just visiting. It was a, a PCA church with... Um, What's his name? He's written the An Emotionally Healthy Church, the yeah, book. Peter Scazzaro. Yeah. And and if I if I remember it was either there or maybe not. Um that church had something like eighty elders. Hmm. It was a big church in the thousands, eighty elders. And what struck me about it is they were all titled elders, not pastors, but elders. 
but there were probably about seven or eight who were shepherding elders. There were probably seven or eight who were teaching elders. There were probably seven or eight who were, you know, facility elders. And basically what it did, with the title elder, you knew that you were visible to the congregation. And as an elder, there was an expectation placed on you in the way that you conducted the affairs of the church, okay, and the level of leadership you gave. But the title also qualified what area hmm. you were responsible for. And then there were the governing elders. And the governing elders are what you and I would know as the normal elders in a church. But it meant the governing elders didn't have to do the bulk of the shepherding or the bulk of the facilities or whatever it is. They, they governed. Whereas the others did their piece and were a subcommittee, if I may put it that way, hmm. of the, el- the governing elders. And it just spread leadership out. Hmm. And then nobody's expecting it of you because there are people who are in place who can do this and they're not paid. Mm. So that's the second you know, level, I think. Go to formal lay leadership. Mm. I think the third level is where you begin to develop a team mm. where you have people now who are on staff and they're paid. Okay, and and then, you know, what happens with that track is you begin to diversify. So I have a person in worship and then I have a person in sound and a different person on stage. Mm. And, you know, I have a children's pastor and then I have children's pastor for the three year olds to the six year olds and the seven year olds to the 11 year olds and etc. It it diversifies and it becomes more and more complex. But that's not where you start. Okay. Okay. Well, let's keep going here. I'm, this is too much fun. Um, let's talk about this idea of title and position. And you've traveled enough, so I think you can talk to this. What's the cultural piece here? Because as a Canadian, North American, titles we looked at, we actually were not as as comfortable with titles. We're more flat. I remember as, as I pastored for 17 years, people in Canada and North America called me Matt. Hmm. Anybody who immigrated and was part of our church had to call me Pastor Matt. It was just so different. Mm. And I'd have to learn to accept it. For them, that was honoring. It worked for them. So you're from an African context. You've traveled to North America. You've seen it. How does, could that cross over and work? You know, uh, let me put it this way. The problem with titles in my context in Africa is too much is loaded into a title. And the attendant error that comes out of that is titles presume power, Hmm. and power can easily lead to abuse. The abuse of authority and the abuse of power, okay? And so people are demigods with titles in our place, and titles are big. Um, So you want to move the, the, you know, the, the, the marker along the line towards the direction, say, of Canada, where titles aren't that big. Mm. But the problem with going too far Mm. in this direction is that then titles have no meaning. Mm. And in some places, they even scorned on, you know, who do you think you are just because you've got a big title and et cetera, et cetera. And I don't know whether you know the Australian thing of cutting the tall puppy down. Mm. You know, everybody's equal. So Mm. if you presume to be better than anybody else, they'll Mm. cut you down, okay? Cut the tall puppy down. And so titles do not hold weight there, okay? And probably same too in Canada. The problem with that is that you lose the gift of recognizing and honoring Mm. leadership. You Mm. remember in the book of Exodus when God said that for Moses and Aaron, there were to be special clothes that were made and they were to wear them to give them dignity and honor. 
It's interesting that it's God who's saying, these guys need to wear dignity and wear honor. And it's going to be most visible in the clothes that they have, which is where the robes that, you know, some mm. of our older churches, um, you know, mainline churches get the, the, the pomp and ceremony of robes and honor. But, but God is saying it's important that Moses have dignity in the way that he conducts himself, walks, you know, engages with people, but that he also wear mm. honor. Mm. So when you remove that, it doesn't help you as a community. And I think somewhere in the middle is mm. sort of the balance we want to keep. That mm. we do have titles. We don't make too much of them, you know, mm. and you don't get big-headed about them, mm. um, but they have their place. Mm. You don't go to the other extreme where it's a flat, you know, egalitarian system where everybody's on the same thing because then people don't know how to respect and to honor. Mm. I mean, you know, for me, coming into your culture here, um, kids call you by the first name. Yeah. Oh, God. You know, <laughs> how is that possible? We're not the same age. We're not, you know, etc. In my context... You know, you don't call somebody that has honor mm. by their first name. Mm. You call them by their surname or you call them by their title. Mm. And it's just your way of saying to them, I see you, I respect you, I honor you for who you are. Mm. When you take that away completely, I think it undoes you also. Mm. Yeah. So neither extreme is good. I think we can be too African on the one mm. hand <laughs> or we can be too Canadian on the other. <laughs> wow. Well, hey, this is a, a good introduction. Um, so we ought to bring this back to, so in light of all this, and you've gone through and people you're mentoring, you've zoned into what's my 5%. Yeah. And you've got these beautiful, when you read me these statements uh, a few, about six, eight months ago, I'm going, this is beautiful. And we have to capture this. And there's many older leaders in North America. And how do you finish well and do things well? And so as we go through this podcast... We want to walk these things through, these these uh, eight different things, and just pick your brain on those, okay. and I trust it'll bless other people. So this is the end of podcast number one. Didn't know where it was going to go here, but when you're with Oscar, you never know where the conversation is going to go, and I love it. And uh, so blessings, and look forward to hearing, seeing you again at our next podcast.